invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. As I'm sure you're well aware, uh, yesterday our nation celebrated her 244th anniversary of uh, the Declaration of Independence. And uh, I've been thinking a lot over the past few months about how consistently concerned the Bible is with showing us how to live simultaneously as the people of God, as His sanctified people called out from the world, and yet as citizens of the world. Um, and the reason I've been thinking a lot about that is because that is pretty much what the book of First Peter is about as we've been going through the book of First Peter. It's about how God's beloved children who are, who are dispersed in the world can live faithfully as exiles in the world. That's the, that's the word that Peter uses on a number of occasions to describe followers of Christ as exiles. He leans heavily on that imagery of exile. And that, that image of, of exiles living in the world, of people who are living in a place that is not their home, um, that's not something that Peter kind of just conjures up out of thin air. It's not something that he just sort of sat down one day and thought, you know what, this would be a good analogy. He is relying on something that's happened earlier in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there is this event that we often refer to as the exile. And so I thought it might be helpful for us because of this holiday weekend and because of our journey through First Peter, kind of take a step back and to look at the background um, that, that Peter is using when he talks about that. And so whether you've been paying attention to those sermons in First Peter or not, this will be, I think, relevant for you and helpful for us. And so um, what you have is in the New Testament, Peter writes a letter to, to Christians who are dispersed in, in various places in the world. This morning, we're going to read a portion of a letter that the prophet Jeremiah wrote to dispersed exiles roughly 600 years before Christ. And so let's read together here in Jeremiah chapter 29. We're going to begin in verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from, from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you 
And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Let's pause there and we'll pray together. Lord, we're thankful that you have spoken, not only that you spoke long ago, but that you have spoken to us through your son Jesus. We're thankful that we can open your word and and we can hear your voice to your people. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear this not as um, just a book from a long time ago, but that we would hear this as the living Word of God that is relevant to us, that applies to us even today in 2020. And, God, that you would help us to see how we can apply this to our lives and how this can lift our eyes to behold your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are, we are parachuting into the book of, of Jeremiah this morning. So I'm aware of that. I, I want to make sure that we all have our, our bearings as we, as we land here. So let me kind of walk you through what's been happening so that we all can kind of make sense of what we just read. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah lived during a time in the Old Testament that, as I said a moment ago, we call this time the exile. God was, was warning the people of Israel that if they continued to break the covenant that God had made with them, uh, if they refused to listen to Him and to turn back and to repent, God said, I'm going to cast you out of the land that I've given you. God had, had given them the promised land, and He said, listen, I've given you this, I've put you here, but if you don't listen to me, if you keep on sinning and breaking the covenant that I've made with you and you, and you don't turn back and repent, then this place that I've given you, I'm going to take it from you. More, more specifically, I'm going to take you from it. And so uh, this is something that God had, had warned Israel about for a long time. This is something that God had begun to warn them about long before Jeremiah's day, long before Jeremiah was born. Before Israel even entered the promised land, God told them that if they hardened their hearts, if they would not listen to His voice, that He would evict them. He would spit them out of the land. He said in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 63, you shall be plucked off the land. That's what he said in Deuteronomy. This is back when Moses was still alive. You shall be plucked off the land. And so by the time Jeremiah comes around, God is, is ready to bring those threats to pass. And in fact, when God commissioned Jeremiah, he echoed the language of Deuteronomy. He told Jeremiah in chapter 1, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So there's going to be, God tells Jeremiah, there's going to be a plucking up and a breaking down. There's going to be a destroying and an overthrowing. There's also going to be building and planting. So if you're doing the math there, God tells Jeremiah six things. And four of those are things we would say sound bad, right? Two of those sound pretty good, building and planting. But four of those, two-thirds, sound like that doesn't sound fun. 
plucking up, breaking down, destroying, and overthrowing. And that's pretty much, when you read the, the book of Jeremiah, that's pretty much the case. That it's, it's the majority of what Jeremiah has to say is, is what we would say kind of negative. It doesn't sound very promising, but there is going to be some hope. And here in Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah is, is writing to those exiles who had been plucked up, who had been taken to Babylon. But I want you to notice something. Jeremiah was not the only one preaching during this time. So there were other prophets as well. Look at verse 1 again. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So there are other prophets who are around, who are in Babylon, and not all of them agreed with the message that God was speaking through Jeremiah. And as I just mentioned, Jeremiah's sermons were, were kind of downers, to be honest. They were, they were not the kind of, of sermons that people would go and, and say, man, that sermon just made me feel great. You know, because what Jeremiah was saying is, listen, this place that God has given you, He's going to kick you out of it because you guys won't stop sinning. You won't repent and turn back to Him. He's going to remove this thing that He has promised to you. And not only that, but... God is going to allow foreign nations to take you as slaves. And those foreign nations are going to come in and they are going to destroy Jerusalem. They're going to destroy the temple. And so these other prophets come along and they see this sort of vacuum where the, there's lots of people who say, we don't really want to listen to Jeremiah. So these prophets say, well, we'll tell them what they want to hear. And here's what they want to hear. God's not going to allow that to happen. You are God's chosen people. You are His choice people that He redeemed out of Egypt. Now, why would God redeem you? Why would God go through all of that work to redeem you out of Egypt? Remember all those plagues He did to get you out of Egypt? Remember how He's already brought you out of slavery to a foreign nation? And now Jeremiah saying that He's going to let that happen again? I don't think so. And by the way, Jeremiah says that Jerusalem and the temple are going to be destroyed. That's blasphemous. Why would God let His holy place be destroyed? Why would He let the temple where He says His name resides, why would He, let that, why would he allow that to be overrun by these foreign nations? God, God's going to show His power. God's going to show His strength, His might. He's going to bring defeat on His enemies. And you can imagine these prophets getting all worked up, and you can imagine the people saying, Amen! Amen! That sounds great! The problem is, over and over and over again, from every step along the way, what Jeremiah said was going to happen came true. And what those prophets said was going to happen did not come true. Now, it is true that God is stronger than the false gods of Babylon because the false gods of Babylon are nothing but idols. God says to them, you, you pray to them, but they have ears, but they don't hear. They're, they're just pieces of stone and wood. They, they've got ears, but they don't hear you. They've got a mouth, but they can't speak to you. They have hands, but they can't reach out and save you. But the thing is, the exile was not a defeat for the Lord. It was a fulfillment of that long-standing warning that He had given to Israel. It was part of His mysterious purpose to purify His people. And so once all that happened, then what do those false prophets do? They have to sort of pivot and say, okay, 
Everything Jeremiah has said will happen, it's happened. We can't deny that. But all of this is going to be really short-lived. God's not going to allow His people to, to be slaves for a long time. He's going to vindicate us. He's going to do it quickly. And that's where this letter comes into play. God is going to set the record straight. And the gist of His message to the people of Israel is that you need to prepare yourselves for a long stay in Babylon. Notice what he says in verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, here's where God's going to say, Here's what I have said. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So God says, it's true, I am going to keep my promise. I am going to bring you back to Jerusalem, but only after 70 years are completed. Seven decades. Um, I don't need to say, state the obvious, 70 years is a long time. It's not as long to some of you in the room as it is to others. But 70 years, that's how long this exile will last. And I don't want us to rush past that number, 70 years. I want us just to sort of marinate on that for a second. Uh, anytime I think about the exile, I try, try to, to sort of put it into perspective. I know that the first six months of 2020 have seemed like 70 years, but they're actually only six months. But 70 years is actually a long time. And so what I often find it helpful to do is to, to, to think about, okay, if that were me, if, if I were thrust into exile and God told me it was going to last 70 years, then what, do, what would I need to prepare for? So, so let's imagine a fictional family, um, Matthias, 33 years old, his wife, Rebecca, with a K, 32 years old. They have two sons, five and three. And uh, they've been living in Babylon for, let's say, six months. So they've, they've been there six months. What is the exile going to mean for that family? <clears throat> well, for Matthias and Rebecca, it means <clears throat> we're probably never going to see Jerusalem again, right? Unless we live to be over 100 years old. And unless we then decide to brave the journey back to Jerusalem, we're probably going to die in Babylon. That's going to be our home for the rest of our lives. And that's why God tells them in verse 5, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. If you think you're going to be there somewhere for six months or a year, you're probably just going to try to you know, find somewhere to rent. But if you say, I'm going to be here for 70 years, well, then that's going to affect the decisions you make about what you do. So God says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. What about their kids? What about the five-year-old and the three-year-old? They might grow up with faint memories of Jerusalem. They might not. But like their parents, they may never return. Uh, God says to them in verse 6, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. He's, he's getting them ready for the fact that you are going to be here for generations. Go on with your life. Get used to this new reality and do your best to honor the Lord in and through it. 
So it's not surprising that this image of exiles trying to live faithfully in a foreign land becomes this powerful analogy in the New Testament for Christians trying to live faithfully in the world because God effectively is telling Israel, listen, Babylon, Babylon may not be where you're from, but this is where you live now. And you can't wait around and, and wish for things to get better. You can't, you can't wait and say, well, let's just wait until things go back to normal because they're not going back to normal in your lifetime. If, if you say, well, we're going to just you know, wait until we get back to Jerusalem before we put our kids in school, then they're not going to ever go to school. If you say, we're going to wait till we get back to Jerusalem to find them someone to marry, they're never going to have a family. Um, so you, you can't wait and, and wish for things to get better. You have to figure out how you're going to live faithfully as my people right here and now in Babylon. The same analogy is true for us. As, as Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for the day when Jesus is going to make all things new. But that does not mean that we sort of stay idle, that we sit around and twiddle our thumbs and, and wait for that to happen. We have to figure out how we're going to live faithfully as His people right here, right now, in the world where He has placed us. So here is a helpful way that we can summarize the big idea, not just of Jeremiah 29, but of, of this whole big picture here. That God's people are not of the world, but they are sent into the world. God's people are not of the world, but sent into the world. And I'm borrowing that language plagiarizing from Jesus. He said when he was praying in John 17, he said of his disciples, they are not of the world, but I have sent them into the world. So God's people are not of the world, but sent into the world. There are two truths there that, that balance each other. Let's start with the, the second half of that statement. God has sent his people into the world. And let's try to do a, a mental exercise here. Let's try to put ourselves into the shoes of, or the, or the sandals of, uh, somebody from Jerusalem, and you're, you're just arriving in Babylon, and you're looking around. What are your initial impressions of Babylon? And I, just, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. There's no way for us to really have a specific answer, but Let's just imagine, do you think it's possible that they, they said, I hate this place, right? I mean, they've got, they've got food here that's unclean. There, there's no temple here. Uh, I'm surrounded by people who speak another language. I hate this place. That's probably why these false prophets rose up to, to tell them what they wanted to hear. Don't worry. Everything is going to be back to normal in no time. Of course, that was not true. That was not God's plan. He tells them in verse 11... I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And one way you could translate that phrase is to give you a hopeful future. Future and hope are both words that we, we, we use, that the Bible uses to talk about things that aren't present right now, that we can't yet see. So God says His plans were good. They're plans for welfare and not for evil but they were not plans for Israel's immediate good. He's not saying, I'm about to make everything better right now. He's saying, I'm going to one day 
My plans are to give you a future and a hope. So the good that God had planned was in the future. It was something to be anticipated, not something to be attained in the short term. That is crucial to Jeremiah's message. Equally crucial is how they ended up in Babylon in the first place. Look back with me at verse 1 and notice this. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exile and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people. Notice this. Whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. If you stop at verse 1 and you ask the question, how did these exiles from Jerusalem end up in Babylon? The answer is Nebuchadnezzar took them into exile. But there's something more. Look again at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And God repeats that phrase several times. Whom I have sent, whom I have sent, whom I have sent. So how did these people get from Jerusalem to Babylon? Verse 1 says Nebuchadnezzar took them. Verse 4 and other phrases say that God sent them. Which one is right? They're both right. God sent them into exile by means of Nebuchadnezzar taking them into exile. So the Babylonian king was the instrument of heaven's king to carry out his purpose for his people. Once you realize that, it fundamentally changes your whole perspective on the exile because when you realize that God has sent them into this, then suddenly this is not a meaningless, arbitrary event in history This is not an unpleasant disappointment. This is an unfolding of God's good purpose. The Babylonians meant it for evil, but He intended it for good. He knows the plans that He has. Israel has been overcome by Nebuchadnezzar, but more importantly, they have been sent by the Lord for His purpose. And the same is true for you and me. It is not an accident that we live where we live and when we live. God has sent us to this place in this time for His purpose. And we might occasionally or even often find ourselves disappointed with the world in which we live, but that doesn't mean that we have to hate it. On the contrary, as God told the exiles in verse 7, "...seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf." For in its welfare you will find your welfare. When you realize that you've been sent, it gives you a purpose. And the purpose is, as the Lord says here, among other things, to seek the welfare of the place where I've sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf. God's people have been sent into the world. The other part of that big idea is equally true. Not only have God's people been sent into the world, also God's people are not of the world. God sent these exiles to Babylon, but they were not of Babylon. And the same is true of us. As Jesus says, I've sent you into the world, but you are not of the world. You are not meant to have the same values, the same worldview as the world in which you live. So let's do another mental exercise. A moment ago I said, let's imagine what these exiles might have thought, what they might have felt when they first arrived in Babylon. And now let's ask ourselves, what might they have thought and felt after they had been there for decades? Put yourself not in the shoes of of someone, not only in the shoes of someone who has just arrived or someone who came from Jerusalem and has been there a long time, but put yourselves in the shoes of maybe a a child or a grandchild who never been to Jerusalem. 
doesn't know anything. They don't know what it looks like. They don't know what it smells like. All you've ever known is Babylon. Do you think it's possible that they start to say, this place isn't so bad? I mean, it's, it's a big city, lots of, lots of great things. You know, they, they, we've got things here that we didn't have back in Jerusalem. You know, we've got a, I don't know, a Walmart Supercenter in Babylon. I don't know what it is, you know, but we, we've got, there's some, some nice things. This is kind of comfortable. We, we kind of start to become at ease in Babylon. I don't know if that happened. I don't think, I don't think Walmart Supercenter happened, but, you know, the gist. I don't, I don't know if they really grew to love Babylon. I, I suspect it did, but I don't, know, I don't know for certain. What I do know is that many Christians uh, have become at ease in the world. And this is not a new problem. John warns us about this in, in 1 John chapter 2. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In, in 2 Timothy, Paul speaks of a man named Demas who had deserted him because, Paul says, he was in love with this present world. So it can be, it can be easy to withdraw from the world and to hate it. Say, you know what? We're supposed to be God's set-apart set people, and so we're going to hate the world. We're, we're, you know, we're going to refuse to participate in the world. We're not going to, to shop where the world shops. We're not going to watch what the world watches. We're not going to listen to what the world listens to and all those kind of things. And it can be equally easy to conform to the world and to love it, to, to just become where, where it's, you're, you're totally indistinguishable from someone who is of the world. So if we want to live as faithful followers of, of Christ, we have to walk this fine line that we are not of the world, but we have been sent into the world. Both of those things have to be true at the same time. And if you have any sense, any inkling of self-awareness, you know that that is not an easy balance to strike. So... How do we do that? How do we, how do we live as those who are not of the world, but who have been sent into the world? Uh, verse 7, I think, is, is really crucial. God gives us a, a sense of, of how we do that. He says, first, to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And we could sort of take that and apply that to to ourselves by saying, you know, seek the welfare of the place where you've been sent, seek the welfare of the, the city, the, the county, the state, the country, whatever the case may be. And so part of what that means, you know, we can try to think of some practical things. It means that it's good for us to be involved in civic life, as, as God told the exiles, to seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you. You could think about what are the different forms of welfare, not thinking about, you know, um, welfare in the sense of government welfare, but, but the, the good of the place where you live, the, the physical welfare. So that means, you know, working, if you're, if you're able, working, making a, a living, uh, helping others. Um, it might mean serving in some way. We have, we have people in our church who have served in the military. Uh, you could serve in, in public office, serve on school board or something like that. Those are ways that you could seek the welfare of the place where you've been sent. There's also um, the, the, the social and moral good of the place. So doing things like voting, um, appealing to our elected officials to pursue justice, to do peace, um, to, to love mercy. 
speaking up for vulnerable people, for people who are disenfranchised and don't have as loud of a voice as some of us may have, figuratively speaking, uh, advocating for values and practices that are Christ-like, supporting organizations that are doing meaningful work in our communities, um, being responsible citizens, loving our neighbor as ourselves, following laws. Those are all ways that we can seek the welfare of the place where God has sent us. And then in addition to that, uh, God says to pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray to the Lord on behalf of the place where He has sent you. And so it's certainly good for us to, to pray for our country, to pray for our state, to pray for our county, for our city, as God has instructed us to do. And in the New Testament, you, you hear those same kinds of things where Paul says, I urge that prayers and petitions will be made for all government officials, for everyone in authority. And so we, we certainly should pray uh, to the Lord on behalf of the place where we live. As we do that, we have to remind ourselves that we've been sent into the world, right? So we, we seek the welfare of it, we pray for it, but also that we're not of the world. That our hope does not ultimately lie in what happens to America or to Alabama or to Pike County. Um, our joy and peace are not tethered to, or they should not be tethered to, an election, a president, a party, a judge, a decision. As we pray for America, as we pray for the place where we live, we should examine our heart and make sure that we're still able to say with the psalmist, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. As I was, uh, as I was uh, sort of getting ready for bed last night, I came across this this tweet of a, of a pastor who was talking about the, the 2020 election is going to be um, the most consequential thing for the sake of Christianity and, and, and religious liberty, you know, ever. And I thought, come on, bro. Like, God is very clear. We, we, we should certainly pray. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for it, go out and vote, do all those kind of things. But I don't think Jesus is fretting about who gets elected in 2020. I don't think Jesus is worried about it. I think he's like, my kingdom is going to be just fine. Because he said that. He said the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So he's not worried. He's not, he's, not, he's not fretting. And so we need to be able to say, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? Not from a party, not from a president, not from an election. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And we should heed the warning of the Lord as we read earlier. Put not your trust in princes. Put not your trust in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. So, so here's my encouragement to us today. We, we can give thanks uh, for the blessings that God has shown to us by virtue of where we were born and where we live. We have a lot of, of freedoms and privileges that are ours uh, simply because we were born where we are. Um, so we, we can be thankful for that. We can pray for, for our country that she'll live up to the values she professes. We can seek her welfare by striving to be good citizens 
Not because it's the American thing to do, but because it's the God-honoring, Christ-obeying, Spirit-filled thing to do. As Peter put it, uh, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. But as you thank God for His common grace demonstrated in this nation, we can also remember that one day, if you're in Christ, you will bow your knee before the Lord and thank God that America is no more. And I say that because that's what the Bible says will happen in Revelation eleven fifteen. It says, There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And then it says that the people give thanks because this is so. So one day we're going to see Jesus for who He is. One day everything that, that seems so important right now is going to pass away, but He will remain. He will be so glorious and so worthy that all other treasures and all other kingdoms will seem very dim in comparison. And again, this is where that balance is so difficult to hold. Because when we say that these things are passing away, that doesn't mean they're not important. You know, one of, one of these days, my body's going to pass away. That doesn't mean that I'm not about to go eat lunch in just a minute. One of these days... My home is going to pass away. That doesn't mean I'm going to stop paying the mortgage or stop you know, keeping up maintenance on it because I, right now I, I need a body. <laughs> right now I need a place where I can live and where my family can live. So when we say those things are going to pass away, that doesn't mean that, that they're not important. It just means that as we eat and as we pay our mortgage and as we live as citizens of the world in which we live, we do so with that eternal perspective that we are here for the purpose of serving one who is eternal, a kingdom that will have no end. And so we should live for Him and for the things that are eternal. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in a moment. and This is our opportunity to respond to God's Word. And I just want to sort of close by asking you, um, not to answer this out loud, but just in your own heart, is there, is there evidence in your life that you are not of the world? Is there evidence that you are a set-apart child of God? Because when, when God wrote those words to the people of Israel and He said, I, I know the plans I have for you, plans for your, your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And when, when Peter wrote that letter to the Christians in, in First Peter, he was writing to people who were reconciled to him, who had been redeemed. And so if you haven't been redeemed, if you have not come into a relationship with God by faith in His Son Jesus, then you don't have that kind of hope that the people of Israel could have and that, that we can have. Uh, but God extends the offer of forgiveness, the offer of adoption to any who will put their trust in Jesus and turn from their sin. Jesus is the one who, even though He was perfectly sinless, He went into exile in our place. He bore the curse of God in our place. He was taken outside the city. He was nailed to a cross under the curse of God and he entrusted his life into the hands of his father and on the third day 
the Father vindicated him and gave him his life back. And that is the promise to us that whoever will believe in him, whoever will trust in him, God will not put to shame. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for this promise. We're thankful that we don't have to come to you holding up our efforts. But Lord, as, as we sometimes sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. God, as we sing in just a moment, I need thee every hour. I pray that we would be able to say that from the bottom of our heart. Lord, as we think about our, our nation declaring her independence, Lord, that we would be reminded that we are constantly dependent on you, that we need you every hour for life and breath and everything. And Lord, that more than we need life, more than we need breath from you, we need eternal life. We need forgiveness. We need reconciliation that you offer to us freely in your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray if there's anyone hearing my voice right now, whether it's in this room or whether it's online somewhere, God, and, and they, they know right now that they're not right with you. I pray, Spirit of God, that you would convict them of their sin and draw them to Jesus, that they would be restless until they run to you and put their trust in you and plead with you to forgive and to restore and renew. God, help us to lift our eyes this morning to behold the glory of Jesus, the grace of Jesus. And God, that, that as we do so, Lord, that you would give us strength to live as your people who are not of the world, but sin into the world. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.